butyrate produced in your gut is capable of traveling all the way through your bloodstream and arriving at the brain. The brain has a protective wall in the same way that the gut does. Butyrate is actually capable of helping to repair the blood-brain barrier. So people who have damage to the gut, or leaky gut if we want to call it that, will often say they have brain fog. And we struggle to exactly say what brain fog is, but I believe that brain fog is indicative of damage to the blood-brain barrier. And when you get adequate amounts of fiber in your diet through plant-based diversity, you create butyrate, and the butyrate is capable of traveling all the way up there to your brain to repair the blood-brain barrier. And in addition to that, it has other things that it does in the brain, such as it improves focus, concentration. That's Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or Dr. B. And this is episode 80 of The Proof Podcast. Hey friends, gosh, these weeks are flying by. I hope you've had a positive day full of good vibes. Welcome back, or for new listeners, welcome. You're tuning in to the Plant Proof Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Hill. Each week on this show, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and much more, to have conversations that can help all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. This week is a slightly different format for the show. I did a Q&A or question and answer episode a while back with a good friend of mine, Jeremy Butler from Adelaide, who has been on the show twice now. He has a great story where he went from paleo to keto and and then found his true health with a plant-based lifestyle. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and do so. It's a a really interesting story. Anyway, the Q&A episode that I did with Jeremy received amazing feedback, as did my other episodes with Dr. B on gut health. So today, Dr. B or Dr. Will Balsowitz is back and he's in the hot seat as we go through specific gut health related questions that the Plant Proof community sent in. As there were so many questions, this has been split over two episodes. So this is the first of the two and in the coming month or so, I'll publish the other half give you some time to digest all of the information from this episode first. It's a good one, that's for sure. Anyway, friends, this is a really interesting podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Time to get into it. I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. 
I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. B, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's a pleasure to be back on the Plant Proof Podcast, man. <laughs> it's always good, mate. Always good to throw down a, a little potty with you. Uh, it's great. No, I love it. I love having these conversations and I love interacting with uh, the people who listen to them and they come back to you and I and have comments or, you know, my favorite is especially when they go and they share it on their Instagram so that their friends who have never listened to a Plant Proof Podcast before We'll come and listen to because I think that's the absolute coolest is when you when you share and then you bring people on board. You know, it's like for me, in, in all seriousness, when I take care of my patients, I would rather convert one person to healthy eating, healthy lifestyle than take care of an entire month's worth of people using traditional means. I just feel like it's so much more powerful what I did for that one person. And so imagine the listeners who are tuning in right now, what they can do by just sharing this content that is so powerful and potentially bringing their friends on board. And you, you just never know how that can influence someone. Oh, I mean, they, and, you know, and then your friend changes their diet and you were personally responsible for it. And it's just like it's spectacular. Snowballs from there. And then they start to tell their friends and family and the the net effect can be so great. Absolutely. Well, mate, speaking of the community, I I let the community know that you were going to be back on the show and I, I put the feelers out and asked them to come together and hit me up with any question that they had related to gut health. And boy, do I have a list to go through today. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome 
to the hot seat, I should say. Uh, <laughs> woo! How are you feeling? <laughs> Let's go, man. Let's go. I'm ready and pumped. Mm. Pumped. And I just showed you a little bit of AFL football, actually, before we get in. That got me even more pumped. So I want to go play. So I'm very proud to let all of the Australian listeners know that Dr. B is a big Collingwood fan now. <laughs> I'm actually wearing my jersey right now. <laughs> if you're looking at the video, though, you know it just, I just fibbed. But anyway. <laughs> uh, we'll get you one. We'll get you one. <laughs> Podcast four, you'll be wearing one. <laughs> all right. Good luck, good luck putting my last name on that one. <laughs> Hey, I did pretty well. Our first podcast, I got that pronounced. Oh, no, you, you can pronounce it perfectly fine. I'm just saying that you have to change the font size yeah, because I have so many it's letters. It's a long one. <laughs> All right, let's kick this off. First question, does heavy bloating mean that there's something wrong with our gut health? Not necessarily. It really depends on on what you're eating. But generally speaking, heavy bloating for most people, if this is a consistent problem, if this is happening on a daily basis, then yes. For most people who have heavy bloating, it generally is going to mean that there's been damage to the gut microbiome and that these communities of microorganisms that are helping you to process your foods, specifically helping you to process your carbohydrates, break them down, digest them, produce short-chain fatty acids, which we've talked about in a couple of the podcasts that you and I have done together, it specifically may indicate that there's been damage to these communities and that they're struggling to do that. And that's why you're getting bloating. Is there anything to do with like portion size? Is like a little bit of bloating post-meal normal? Is it abnormal, I guess, when it is associated with pain? Like what what's normal and where's, where's the point that bloating can reach where it is something to be worried about? We all get gas sometimes. We all get bloating once in a while. I do too. It's, nor, it's, it's part of being a normal human being. And part of it is our approach to diet, which is that we just kind of throw stuff on a plate or throw something in a bowl and then we deal with the aftermath or the consequences. And so what I would argue for is an increased awareness of where the strengths and weaknesses of our microbiome are and to basically recognize that, look, there's no one size fits all, right? So you and I, when we're sitting here and we're saying whole foods plant-based, that doesn't mean that the way that you eat whole foods plant-based is the way that I eat whole foods plant-based. It's different. And there are some people who can eat lots of beans and there's some people that need to really restrict the amount of beans that they eat. It doesn't mean that they should eliminate beans from their diet. It just means that they need to be more gentle. And you mentioned gas then, right? Which can be, I guess, can be a little bit different to bloating. Is is gas normal? Well, we all have gas. We all we all produce gas. It's completely normal to pass gas throughout the entire day. And I, I think you're absolutely correct on your comment from before, which is at what point does that gas production cross the line into being a problem? Generally speaking, it's going to be when it's creating other symptoms, right? So if you're having abdominal pain that comes with it, if you're having distension of your abdomen, then it warrants further investigation to see what's going on. And one thing that I would just toss out there to your listeners is that when I hear gas and bloating as a gastroenterologist, the first thing that I'm thinking about is, is this patient constipated? We need to investigate. We need to make sure. And there are plenty of people who poop on a daily basis and they're still constipated. If you don't completely empty, then you are by definition backing up. And so this is one of the big things from my perspective. Okay, so diving into that a little bit deeper, right? What are some ways to 
minimize the chance of developing constipation in the first place? Is that having sort of a, a regular bowel routine? Is it what you're doing on the toilet? Is it what you're eating? I, I hate to assign like a specific number of like, hey, you should be pooping this many times a week or this many times per day. But generally speaking, if you think about the fiber deficiency that exists in our cultures, 97% of Australians fiber, not, not meeting a minimal standard of fiber, 97% of Americans not meeting a minimal standard of fiber, right? So we're not doing it. We're not getting the job done. And if we frankly were eating enough fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, most of us would be pooping two or three times a day. So I hate to assign a number to it, but the, the point from my perspective is it really should be effortless. You really shouldn't have to sit on the toilet and strain. You shouldn't have to force it. If you feel like it's not coming out the way that it's supposed to, if it comes out as a little turd or a little nugget, um, not to be too graphic and talk about poop, but I guess that's what we're here to do today. The, uh, the Bristol stool chart, right? You got to love the Bristol stool chart. Uh, you know, whoever Dr. Bristol was, their <laughs> name is forever um, attached to the appearance of someone's poop. But there's, and there's different types. If you look, it, the people at home can look this up on Google, the Bristol stool chart, there's seven different types. Type four is normal. And that's a sausage shaped formed bowel movement. And that's what we want to see. You want to see a nice, long, effortless sausage shaped bowel movement that's formed, but also soft. Okay. Second question. How does our mind affect our digestion? It's a two-way street. Yeah. I mean, I mean, perhaps I'll add something from my experience, right? I I know a lot of guys, like friends of mine, who they're not they're not plant-based and, and a lot of them still eat a lot of animal protein. But they do want to eat more plant protein and they understand the benefits of doing so. But some of them have had experiences with beans, for example where they almost fear them and you know it gets it gets them so worked up that when they try to add them in they're thinking about it so much and it's almost like it it affects their success right what do you, what do you think about that oh totally i, I think that there's we um uh, our instagram culture has created some eating disorders among normal people that maybe don't meet criteria of like a traditional eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia but there's a little bit of disordered eating in the sense that in some cases there's such fear of food such fear of the effect of a change to our normal routine you know we tend to as humans we fall back to what we know what we what we consider to be safe right that's sort of like our safe harbor and that's an unfortunate thing because for most Americans, most Australians, it's this diet that's dominated by meat, dairy, processed foods. And even though you know it's not healthy, you still stay there because you know that that's, you, you feel like that's safe and it's comfortable. And when we deviate from that, you have to understand that your microbiome is built for the diet that you eat on a routine basis. It's really designed for that, right? So if you deviate from that, if you and I were to go out and get a burger right now, we don't eat that way. We'd feel horrible. We'd feel horrible after eating that burger, right? And the same is true for someone who eats this om omnivore type diet where beans are not a big part of what they do and they want to start to get the beans on board, but the microbiome is not built for that. So, so from a, that sort of then gets me thinking about a transition, right? So if someone actually wanted to transition to a plant-based diet and they were used to eating an omnivorous diet, would you be suggesting a, a slower, more integration? I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's the way that it happened for me. You know, 
for me, this was a process that went on over a period of years. And it was just sort of a progression that took place. And from my perspective, making these transitions, it's, it's about progress. It's not about some specific timeline or, hey, you got to get this done in this period of time. It's about what is your goal and what can we do to work towards that goal? Then looking at, I guess, the mind at, a, at an almost deeper level, right? What about anxiety, stress with relationships or, or work? Can that directly affect your digestion? Oh, big time. Big time. Yeah, no, they, they've shown that that stress, acute stress in the moment affects digestion, affects motility, affects gut sensitivity. And then you layer on top of that, the potential hypervigilance that can come with a dietary change where you have this a little bit of anxiety surrounding a change in the food and you're kind of fixating on this food. Like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when I eat this? And you're so tuned into your gut that the slightest little thing that like, you know, the, uh, normally you wouldn't even feel, you wouldn't even pay attention to, but because you're so hypervigilant, you notice it. And then that, that sort of reinforces your preconceived idea of what was going to happen. It creates a problem. Okay, this, is a, this is a very interesting question. How do I know if my gut needs repair, right? And I, I guess that question is asking for what are the sort of telltale symptoms, but I might add something to this because it may also be relevant here to talk about an omnivorous diet and TMAO, which you and I have discussed, right? So that may not be a, a sign or a symptom that someone can feel, but is happening more at a cellular level and potentially setting them up for problems in the future. Right. There's the obvious signs that your gut needs repair, right? There's the obvious signs. Digestive issues is where most of the conversation would start. So are you having acid reflux, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, distension, you know, anything of that variety, that's that's the easiest, obvious place to start. But then, you know, go down the line and look at the different disease states that are associated with damage to the gut microbiome that are beyond the digestive system. So let's look at the fact that type 2 diabetes, that obesity, that even abnormal cholesterol levels, coronary artery disease, even with the heart, believe it or not, congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal heart rhythm, have been associated back to changes in the gut microbiome. Anxiety, depression, migraine headaches, autism, ADD, all of these things come back to the gut. All right. So we can wait until disease arrives and then we can fight and struggle and hope to be able to push back that disease to the point that it's no longer a part of our life. Or we can acknowledge the importance of the gut right now for every single person who is listening to this podcast right now. And we can say, this is too dang important. This is too dang important. And all it takes is simple changes to our lifestyle to take care of our gut, optimize it, and reap the rewards, some of which you'll never know, right? The fact that you don't develop that disease, you will never know because you didn't develop the disease. And that's a beautiful thing. But then let's layer on top of that, the idea of these silent but deadly things that can be going on with the body, right? So when you have digestive issues, it's not silent. 
right? You consume that meal and you feel unwell. You have bloating, gas, abdominal pain, maybe some diarrhea or constipation. It's obvious. It's overt. It's, it's capturing your attention. What is not obvious or overt or capturing your attention is the development of coronary artery disease. And the pathway that this happens, which you alluded to, is through the production of something called TMAO. All right. And this is a complete game changer. This is a complete game changer. And I give a standing ovation to the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic who are the ones who have been figuring this out. Because the way that it worked, and by the way, the Cleveland Clinic is, most people would argue, this is the number one heart program in the United States. Okay. So what these doctors discovered about five years ago is they noticed that patients who had coronary artery disease had a high level of this thing in their blood called TMAO. So they started to ask the question, well, where does that come from? What's the scoop? What's the scoop with TMAO? And they worked backwards. And what they found is that it was coming from our diet. Okay. And there's two things in our diet that basically can promote the production of TMAO. Carnitine, which is a component of red meat. And you'll also find it in some energy drinks, which is kind of disturbing. Or choline. Choline is found in animal products, animal meat. It's found in egg yolk, high fat dairy. Yes, you will find it also in some plants. Um, and I'm happy to talk about the specifics re with regard to choline in plants in a moment if you want me to. It, choline is necessary. The body does need choline. We can't remove choline from our diet entirely. It has to be there. All right. So, but the the point is that basically. When we consume these two things, carnitine and choline, our gut microbiome, our gut microbiota are able to basically transform this and produce something called TMA. All right. Now, TMA, if you've ever smelled a rotten, rotten fish, that's TMA. Like literally you are smelling TMA when I'm describing right now, but inside your body, inside your colon, these bacteria are transforming the choline and the carnitine to produce TMA. It's never released into the air, so you don't smell like dead fish. It goes into your bloodstream and it travels through your blood to your liver where it's converted into TMAO. TMAO has been associated with increased risk of coronary artery disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, Alzheimer's dementia. I just listed five of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. Five of the top 10. Coronary this is huge, this research. This is amazing. No, it's amazing. And in addition to that, TMAO is also associated with some things that are not necessarily in the top 10 causes of death, but that are debilitating. It's associated with congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and peripheral arterial disease. There's like nothing worse than peripheral arterial disease where people need amputations. It's like the worst thing that I have to see. But the key here is that the microbiome play a central role in this entire process. Your microbiome needs to be able to change the carnitine or the choline to produce the TMAO. That process does not occur unless your gut microbiome is built to do it. So they are basically the gatekeepers. All right. So if you take, and they actually did this study, and I find this to be fascinating. If you take a vegan, they took a vegan who was completely plant-based for five years. 
and they convinced him to eat a steak in the name of science. And so this gentleman agreed to do this, and they measured his TMAO level multiple times over the following 24 hours. So there would have been a lot of carnitine in that meal. Absolutely. A lot of carnitine in that meal. And, and you would expect that there'd be a significant amount of choline as well. And so he eats this steak. And what is this TMA level when he starts? It's effectively zero because the guy doesn't have a microbiome built to produce TMAO. What is his TMAO on every single data point during the 24 hours? The answer is the same for all of those. It's zero. It's effectively zero. He never bumps his TMAO because he's not capable of producing TMAO with the gut microbiome that he has. His plant-based microbiome protects him. So if he was to continue eating like that, would his microbiome change to bacteria that could produce TMAO? Yes. So in a subsequent study, and by the way, real quick, in that same study, they had an, a, a woman who was an omnivore and they fed her the exact same steak, exact same portion size. Her TMAO started much higher, obviously, than the vegan gentleman. And it went up sixfold. It increased sixfold during 24 hours. So there was an acute change in her TMAO that occurred with this one meal. One meal drove up her TMAO acutely sixfold. Okay. They did a subsequent study that they looked at, um, which was red meat versus white meat, meaning like a chicken breast versus a plant-based meal. And what they found in this study is that really the biggest problem was in the red meat. The reason why is because you find the carnitine in the red meat. And so with the consumption of, of the carnitine routinely, you will, over the course of about 28 days, change your microbiome to produce TMAO. So it takes about four weeks for you to really rev up the microbiome. Now, when you withdraw the red meat from the diet, if you were to consume the red meat and then you decide, you know what, I'm going vegan. It takes about 28 days to wash out the effect that you had on the microbiome too. So basically what we're seeing in these studies is that if you change the microbiome, if you change your diet, it takes about 28 days for it to fully adapt and evolve. And that includes when you withdraw something that's not good for you. When you withdraw that from your diet, it takes about 28 days for it to wash out and for your gut to move on to something new. It's fascinating. I mean, you're, with that first study you're talking about with the omnivore and, and the the lady in that study who who had the spike in TMAO, right? That's one meal. But if we think about a typical paleo or keto type of diet, that spike would be happening breakfast, lunch, dinner, right? Every day, right? Three times a day, you're you're basically spiking your TMAO, and that that to me is as compelling and as simple and as clean of an argument as you will find against the keto diet or against the paleo diet as there is out there. That's, that's as clean as it's going to get that by eating this way, you are spiking your TMAO. And this is going to basically put you at risk for number one, number five, number six, number seven, and number 10 five of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. 
The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. The great thing is it only takes 28 days to change your bacteria. So there is hope. It's forgiving. Yeah. The, the gut is forgiving and it will adapt to whatever you choose to do. And this is one of the big themes when we talk about the microbiome is its ability to adapt to the choices that you make. You're the one who's pulling the trigger. You're the one who's deciding that you want to eat this way or that way. And your gut microbiome will change with you. But here's the thing we talked about. We, we talked about in a prior podcast, postbiotics, right? Postbiotics. Postbiotics are the product, the byproduct of bacterial metabolism they're not necessarily good. Postbiotics can be short chain fatty acids, which are amazing. All right. You get that from fiber. Postbiotics can also be TMAO. So this is sort of the antithesis of short chain fatty acids. We want more short chain fatty acids from consuming fiber. We want less TMAO and you see where this is coming from in our diet. Tell me everything that we know about Archaea. <laughs> uh, I know you get excited about Archaea. I love Archaea. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really cool um, because, so if you think about um, life on our planet, 
there was a period of billions of years where humans did not exist. And so there was this period of time where the archaea were the only life on this planet. That was 3.8 billion years ago that we basically found some, like, I guess, a patch of soil in Greenland that shows that these archaea were around 3.8 billion years ago. And there were not even any other single cellular organisms. So archaea are single cellular organisms, um, similar to bacteria, similar to other organisms like fungi. But the difference is they're not exactly the same. You wouldn't classify archaea as bacteria or as fungi. They, they create their own, you know, basically kingdom. And so they've been here for 3.8 billion years. They're highly, obviously highly resilient. There was no oxygen in our atmosphere for well over a billion years that they still existed and got by. No oxygen. You will find them at the bottom of the ocean in like rift vents. You will find them inside a volcano and you will find them inside of your colon. And what they specialize in is the production of gas. All right. So they, if you hear people referring to myth, methanogens, so methanogens are basically microorganisms that produce methane gas. And that's one of the things that archaea do. And we all produce gas. That's a normal part of digestion of our food and balance of the archaea with the bacteria and the fungi is part of what makes the entire process work the way it's supposed to, right? It's all about harmony. That's why dysbiosis is sort of hard for us to quantify or describe because it's really a loss of balance that causes dysbiosis. It's not any one specific thing. So there's this harmony that we want, and that includes the archaea. Some people would argue that we should try to kill them. Um, and they're in the process of developing products that allow us to basically take them out right? But I look back at the entire course of, you know, sort of microbiology over the last 100 years. And what I see is every single time we try to take these suckers out, every single time we think that it's a good idea to just, hey, let's go after them. Let's, let's bomb the bacteria with antibiotics. There's a price that we pay, but we don't pay it up front. Um, we don't see it until it shows up potentially years later. But we now know that it's not that antibiotics are bad. It's that we're overutilizing them. And there are things that happen. You damage the gut microbiome when you use antibiotics. So as they develop these products that potentially could take out archaea, I'm, I would be very reluctant, frankly, to jump on board. You're going to have to show me some nice studies to really get convince me that this is going to be a good call. Because I generally think that when we damage or disrupt the balance that exists with some sort of antimicrobial product, I, I, I worry that this is going to create issues for us. And one of the things that we see with archaea is they actually protect us from heart disease. So yes, if you have gas and bloating, you could blast the archaea with some of the things that are coming down the, the pharmacologic pipeline. You could blast them and then we'll see what happens 30, 40 years ago, you know, 30 or 40 years later, if you develop heart disease. So what's the mechanism? Like how are they, how are they actually protecting us from heart disease? So here's what's interesting about the archaea. The way, the way that they prevent heart disease is we discussed just a minute ago that the gut bacteria produce TMA. Remember the stinky fish, the rotten fish smell. The gut bacteria produce TMA from carnitine and choline in the colon. And then the TMA goes to the liver and it's turned into TMAO in the liver. But what if you could intercept the TMA? What if the TMA that's produced could be transformed into something that cannot be turned into TMAO? 
Well, that's actually what the archaea do. So the archaea basically intercept the TMA. It's not that the TMA is not produced, it's produced, but then it's converted into something that it, it cannot be turned into TMAO. And so the archaea are able to get us out of that process. And if anything, frankly, it weeds credit, it adds viability to the argument of how real this TMAO thing is that you can show that by reducing TMA using archaea, you can protect people from heart disease. Do you have any tips for preparing food to improve digestion? Gosh, there's so many, so many things that you could do. And I would love to hear what your suggestions are and what I would, where I would start with me, I'll just toss uh, a couple minor ones out at you. But to me, like, I, I think that everything becomes much more palatable in a soup. So when you basically put it into water and um, allow all of the flavors and everything to mix together and soften it, um, I do think that that's something that makes it much more gentle on the gut. What do you think? What, what are some of your tips? So I use a couple of little tricks. I guess if I don't have time to soak dried beans overnight, I'll, I'll eat canned beans, which effectively have already been soaked, right? Yeah. And then I will rinse them really thoroughly. So rinse out a lot of the water in, in the beans. And I'll do a similar thing, I guess, with rice. I'll try and soak rice overnight if I can and rinse that really thoroughly again before cooking with it. I find that those help. Also soaking nuts and mm. seeds where you can, but keep it pretty simple. That's probably the, the most preparation that I do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally don't feel like we need, you know, sometimes I feel like we're hyping ourselves up a little too much to worry too much about these little specifics with our food. And, you know, in some regards, it's kind of like, look, let's keep it simple and let's, let's just aim towards abundance and diversity in our diet and enjoy the different foods. And again, recognize that what foods work best with, with me may be a little different than the foods that work best for you. It's a lot more low, lower hanging fruit to go for first. Totally. And just don't do silly things like eat raw beans. <laughs> you definitely should not eat raw beans. Yeah, then I think Simon <laughs> is referring to a conversation that we had offline where there was, uh, ironically, they called it healthy eating day in Japan in 1988. And when they did this, they undercooked the beans at healthy eating day and they had an outbreak of digestive distress on the people that had that particular dish. And, you know, this, this incident that occurred, I mean, it's crazy that we're still talking about it more than 30 years later, because frankly, you know, it happened. And the following day, everyone was back at work. No one was hospitalized. No one was seriously hurt. There was some digestive distress that occurred. And it's been since attributed to lectins. And so this is, this is where it's sort of the theory or the idea that lectins can harm us, lectins, which are found in, you know, in high uh, quantity in our legumes, but that which are ubiquitous in nature, that we all have lectins. I have lectins, you have lectins. It's a part of cellular structure throughout nature. And so, but this is where this idea that lectins are bad sort of was born to some degree. And I'll just tell you that there really hasn't been substantial science to say that lectins are a problem or to be feared. If anything, if you were to look at the weight of balance of science that does exist in humans, what you would find is that we think that lectins protect us from cancer. Last time I checked, that's the number two cause of death in the United States. And 
and in most countries after heart disease. So we think that lectins protect us from cancer. But the other thing we know is that 99% of lectins disappear with simple cooking of the beans, like not pressure cooker. I'm just talking about boiling them. If you buy canned beans, they've already been boiled. So the lectins have already been removed. You just rinse them, like you said. So I think it's one of these things that you can sell a book. It's a lot of hype around. And you can hype it up. And if you are a medical doctor who is intelligent, you can weave together a story based upon test tube studies that aren't really looking at, you know, humans. Um, they're looking at what happens in a test tube when you take an unnatural quantity of a lectin with an unnatural environment, a test tube. Mm-hmm. And you can weave together these studies that make it sound like these things are uh, terrifying. And yet, you know, here we are and where you find lectins, beans, and, you know, legumes and whole grains, to me, I would make a compelling argument that those are the healthiest foods out there. And, you know, legumes, you could go down the line and look at the different conditions, heart disease, stroke, cancer, longer life expectancy. Yeah. Well, there are commonality in, in populations that live long lives. A hundred percent in the blue zones and you know, whole grains are in there too. And believe it or not, there was a study that you and I haven't had a chance to talk about this one yet. We talk about a lot of this stuff, but there's a study commissioned by Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, that basically looked at global population health. And what they found is that the main driver of death across the entire globe is our diet. And country by country, they went through... And they said, well, what is, what is the lowest hanging fruit? What is the main thing that we would change if we could change one thing? And guess what they said for the United States? Beans. Whole grains. Whole grains. Eat more whole there grains. But the legumes were there too. The legumes were there too. So, I mean, these things there. And you know what's cool? These guys, beans and uh, like legumes and whole grains. I know we're getting a little off topic from the original question, but I mean, we're talking about best friends here. We're talking about like Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street. You know what I mean? These guys are best friends because they pair so well. Isn't it interesting how many countries found rice and beans it's as a, a part staple. of their, as a staple in their diet, right? And there's a reason because when you combine the two grains, whole grains and legumes, you get complete protein. That's what's cool is that plants, if you isolate one plant and you say, do I get complete protein from this one plant? the answer generally is going to be no, right? But that doesn't matter because that's not the way that we eat. You're not going to eat just one plant. We eat diversity of plants. And when you combine legumes with whole grains, you get complete protein. And that's the reason why this was a dietary staple around the entire world. If you take one thing from from this podcast, that is that is it right there. Whole grains and beans. And and shout out to PBJ. Yeah. Shout out to peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, Good old yeah, PBJ yeah. because because the peanut butter is actually considered a legume. The peanuts are considered a legume. And so it's not a nut. And so you take that and you combine it with whole grain bread and you have a complete protein. So not bad. I've got to say, I think some of my favorite meals are, I mean, probably most of my meals contain a whole grain and a legume. But my favorite ones, when you throw some guac in there, some salsa, a few spices, and maybe some sweet corn, and you're laughing. Bro, I just <laughs> drooled on your microphone. I'm going to have to buy you a new one. Sorry. <laughs> All right. 
thoughts on supplementing with food enzymes? Are there any benefits to doing this? And if so, who would you recommend to to use them or to think about using them? Okay, so we'll we'll keep this one kind of short and cut to the chase. There's two types of enzymes that you can take. You can take pancreatic replacement therapy, which is not what you were referring to in the question. Okay, pancreatic replacement therapy is actually taking amylase, lipase, protease in a mammalian form, meaning biologically designed to work the way that your human body works. And that's, that is done by people that have what's what we call exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. For one reason or another, their pancreas is not capable of producing. So an example would be someone who has cystic fibrosis. Someone with cystic fibrosis is not capable of producing the pancreatic enzymes that they need to process their food and particularly absorb their fats. That's where they get into trouble. That's a totally different thing. And that's by prescription only, by the way. You're talking about digestive enzymes and digestive enzymes are plant-derived compounds that are designed to help you to process and digest your food. Now, here's the problem. There are no studies to show us whether or not they work. Every single one has its own unique formulation, so you don't you can't compare them to one another. And so the bottom line from my perspective, if you do them and you feel like there's a benefit and you're comfortable with the cost, I'm good. If you do them and you feel no benefit, well, then what's the point? It's supposed to help you to digest and process your food. So I really don't have a problem if people want to do them as long as they're comfortable with the cost. But again, there's no studies to back it up. My question is, these enzymes, they're proteins, right? These are proteins, Proteins. but they're they're plant-derived proteins, but they do help us to break down these foods. You know, for example, an an example that you would be familiar with is bromelain. And bromelain is found in pineapple, Mm -hmm. right? So we know that that pineapple helps us to digest and process our food, which is why sometimes it's nice to have a a little pineapple as a snack with your meal. And these, this might be a silly question, but is there action in the small intestine? Do they make it through the acidic conditions of the stomach into the small intestine or where are they actually having their action? Their action occurs wherever the capsule is released, right? So they're basically inside of this capsule and the capsule will, the the gelatin capsule will break down in the stomach more than likely, open up and it'll release these enzymes and it'll mix with your food and you get whatever benefit you get from it. But again, you know, these are not standardized they're not standardized. They're all different. They're not studied. And so it's hard for me to comment much more on it other than if you feel good when you do them, then I'm, I'm good. I will tell you, I mean, obviously there's a chance that there's a placebo effect. One of my favorite studies that they've ever done, which I find to be absolutely fascinating is they took a group of irritable bowel patients and they literally told them they were giving them a placebo. They literally said this pill that I'm about to give you does not contain medicine. It's a placebo. And they still got better. The placebo effect is real, right? The placebo effect is real. That's why if we really want to study an intervention, we have to do a placebo controlled study because if you just look at the pill by itself, like in this case, the digestive enzymes, if you just look at digestive enzymes and you don't have a placebo control, Mm. you don't really know what they're doing because it could all be placebo effect. Especially when there's so much connection between the gut and the brain. Exactly. Moving on, bone broth. It's all the rage right now for, for gut health. Why? Is there any science behind it? And is there a vegan substitute? So this is becoming literally a billion dollar industry. 
it's amazing the way that it's expanding. And if I wanted to make some cheap money, I would probably start selling bone broth on my, on my website. But here's the problem. I'm going to give a shout out to your listeners at home right now. I want you all to answer this question for me. How many studies are there that suggests a gut health benefit for bone broth? Dun, 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 dun. That's our Jeopardy music right there. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is very simple. It's a whole number less than one. Donuts. There's not even one study to show us that bone broth does anything for gut health. The studies that have been done looking at, looking at some sort of meat-derived broth, the studies that have been done are looking at more like an effect on the sinuses. And so we can't say that bone broth is good for the gut. Now, do people consume bone broth and feel an effect that they attribute to wellness in the gut? Yeah, they do. And you know what? I, I can guarantee you that if I blinded you, if I, if, if I took away your ability to know what I was giving you and I gave you a vegetable-based broth, you'd feel at least as good, if not better. I am sure of it. I am sure if we actually did a study looking at gut health, we would find that there are benefits to a plant-based vegan broth as opposed to a bone broth because it defies the science. You just gave a whole heap of people a business idea. (laughs) (laughs) Cut me into it, please. (laughs) So it, it defies the biology. At the end of the day, we have to follow what is, if we don't have a study, if we don't have a study to show us what's going on when you do a certain intervention, then we have to look at the biology and ask the question, how would this reasonably work? And the answer to this question goes back to a study that you and I have discussed on a prior podcast, which is the journal Nature 2014, doctors Lawrence David and David Turnbaugh. All right. I'm sorry, Peter Turnbaugh. This study from 2014, where they basically gave people an animal-based diet for five days or a plant-based diet for five days. And they showed that there were dramatic differences between the two. The plant-based diet helped to basically grow the the blooms of anti-inflammatory bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids, increased short-chain fatty acid levels, and generally were associated with improvements of markers of gut health. On the flip side, the animal-based diet saw loss of the bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids, decrease short-chain fatty acids, of course, you're not eating fiber. But then there was also growth of inflammatory bacteria, including this particular bacteria, Bilophilia wadsworthia, which has been clearly associated in several studies with the development of inflammatory bowel disease. So literally within 24 hours, you're already seeing changes that are laying the foundation for the promotion of inflammatory bowel disease with the consumption of this diet. So what's my point? My point is that if you were to take bone broth, you take bones and you boil them, you have developed an animal-based broth, okay? That would fit into this animal-based diet that was consumed in the study. How would that be any different? Why would we expect this somehow to be beneficial to to the gut? Whereas on the flip side, if you create an animal-based, I'm sorry, a plant-based broth, I could see, I can see the rationale. I could see the rationale for why that would be good. So, and I, and I truly believe that there's something to a salty, mineral-based, warm water, you know, a broth-based beverage that is 
soothing to the gut. I definitely see that. Like a Mesa. A hundred percent. That's a great way to, to use your leftover vegetables as well. I totally agree. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to, to me is if we're going to do this, I want to see a study where you compare in a bone broth or animal-based broth to a plant-based broth. That's what I want to see. And I, I'm, I'd be willing to bet my money that the, the plant-based broth is going to win. I'm not sure if you meant it, but I liked your pun there where you said it boils down to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This next one's interesting. And I was lucky enough to have a quick squeeze at your book. And there is a, a chapter that that covers this. So without giving away absolutely everything, because and, and we'd be talking for 30 minutes on this question, but please recommend one or two of the top things to eat for gut health. So to jump into this, and I want to hear what you think too, but to jump into this, I would first say this, gut health is built on a foundation of plant-based diversity. That's where we start and we go from there. So when I say the one thing, you know, this one thing, well, if I could pick one thing, it would be plant-based diversity. So I'm, I'm kind of punting when I do that. But that being said, when we do plant-based diversity, it's okay to have foundational foods. It's okay to acknowledge that there are some foods where the benefits outweigh any sort of negative effects so much that we should have them in our diet on a daily basis. And so when I think about that, to me, and I'm thinking about the gut, I would probably start with with legumes, me personally. Um, what do you think, Simon? I was going to say legumes and whole grains. Boom. That's and was, exactly what I was and, and sticking to more whole foods than rather than processed plant-based foods. Oh, that's and that's a critical point too, is that um, it's when you process a food, when you process a food, you are stripping away basically the, the nutritional value that exists there. And you're making it where it gets less and less nutritious. And eventually you cross the line where it's not just that it's not nutritious anymore, it's actually hurting you. And so that's the problem with food processing. So like, for example, take wheat. Wheat is an interesting topic because when we refine wheat to make white flour, what do they do? Well, there's three parts to the wheat, to the seed. And that is the endosperm, the bran, and the germ. Okay. Those are the three parts. And what they do is they strip away the germ and the bran. They strip those away. Well, that's where the fiber, the minerals, the vitamins, the protein, that's where all of that is. And what they keep behind is the endosperm. The endosperm is the starch. So essentially when they make white flour, they've stripped away all the nutritional value They've kept behind the starch. Now, starch isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when you're doing it in an unnatural form because you've stripped away the fiber and all the other stuff, it is a bad thing. And that's how you create white flour. And then what they'll do, this is the classic food industry move, is then they'll add in some vitamins and, and, and minerals to enhance it. And they'll say, oh, this has been enhanced with vitamins and minerals and they'll mark the price up on us. And then it might say on the front seven seed or something tricky. So you think it's a whole grain product, but it's not really. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, but, and for what it's worth, is whole grain flour as good as the seed in its natural form? Absolutely not. Because what happens, even if you were to keep the bran and the germ in there and grind it, what happens is you lose resistant starch. 
So resistant starch is effectively the same as prebiotic fiber. It's a prebiotic. It feeds and nourishes the healthy bacteria that live inside of us. So you are stripping away one of the healthiest parts of the food. And I think to, to add to that, I've got a study here. I actually spoke about this recently, which talks about a processed plant-based diet versus an un- unprocessed. And it was a paper, 2018 paper, that was in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. Mm. And they looked at 116,000 people who at baseline had no chronic disease. And they scored their diet based on the quality of it. So in this, in this group, there were omnivores, but there were also plant-based people as well. They gave positive scores to plant-based foods and they gave negative or reverse scores to animal foods. And then they went a step further and they broke the plant-based foods down to healthy, which were like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, everything we're talking about, mm. and less healthy plant foods. And these were like processed juices, sweetened beverages, refined grains, fries, sweets. And what did they find? They found that those who adhered to a more whole food plant-based diet, so they had a higher score, rather than the unrefined, less healthy plant-based food, had substantially lower coronary heart disease. Mm. So the data is coming out, and this is one of the – I spoke about this because of the importance of as brands – uh, jumping onto the plant-based trend mm-hmm. about realizing that just because something says plant-based on a packet doesn't necessarily mean it is healthy. When you and I are talking about plant-based, really what we're referring to is whole foods plant-based. And you know, it's almost too good to be true to consider that fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts in their native natural form, the way that you would grow them, are essentially universally healthy. Like, yeah, you can do crazy stuff. You could go and eat one food all day long and that would be ridiculous. That would be completely ludicrous. What are you doing? And you could hurt yourself if you do that, right? But if you were to just consume the entire bounty of nature in its native state, you'd be incredibly healthy. I mean, you'd be, you really would be doing the best that you possibly could with your diet. Mm-hmm. And the problem is what us humans do to these natural foods when we you know, basically change them, distort them. I mean, frankly, sort of pervert them in, in a way. And we turn them into something that they were never in the first place. And then we're surprised when we have negative effects in our diet. Truly, junk food vegan is not that healthy of a diet. It's really not. Whole foods plant-based is where we all need to be striving to be. The next question, this one's quite interesting. So This person says, I find it difficult to eat enough when exercising and healing my gut at the same time. So I think what they're saying here is that when they're referring to healing their gut, I think they're talking about perhaps eliminating some trigger foods. And in the process, they're finding it hard to get the calories that they require to perform from a physical activity perspective. It's going to be hard to really truly heal your gut if you're restricting your diet and you're eliminating foods. And then if you're trying to push yourself and increase your caloric intake at the same time, you know, you're sort of setting yourself up to fall on your face in a lot of ways. I do think that there's value to, in in this particular case, if you have damage to your gut microbiome, I do think that there's value to supporting your gut. In addition to doing a diverse diet of whole foods, I do think that there's value to adding in prebiotics 
and probiotics in this particular scenario, because I've seen a million times in my clinic where by doing that, you are helping to promote healthy gut microbiota that then allow you to be better at processing your food. And then it makes it easier for you to transition in terms of ratcheting up your caloric intake. But I mean, what do you think? Do you have any tips in terms of what you do when you're trying to bulk up? Yeah. So I, I actually don't do anything too fancy when, when I'm, when I'm wanting to put on size and I eat a very diverse whole food based diet. If I'm wanting to increase my calories, I either increase the portion size. Usually that would mean increasing the whole grains on the plate or the legumes, Mm. or perhaps in in a smoothie, adding extra bananas or things like dates, which are quite calorie dense. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's, it's more just portion size or potentially throwing in an extra meal or two. So the frequency of the meals across the day. Mm-hmm. Do you add any sort of fat to try to add more calories in there? Like will you yeah. add like peanut butter to your smoothie or anything? Yeah, that's, and certainly like I'm not afraid of fats as long as they're coming from the right type of fats. Right. So I'm not dumping a heap of coconut oil into my smoothies, right. but I will peanut butter or almond butter right. or almonds themselves or peanuts themselves or walnuts. I do a lot of walnuts, uh, right? So Love good. those. And then, then you're getting your omega-3s, you know, hemp seeds, flax seeds, all of that sort of stuff that can really, that can add up and get your calories right up pretty quickly, even avocado. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. That, sound, that sounds spectacular. And what's cool about walnuts is that they, they've had studies that have come out in the last couple of years showing us that walnuts have prebiotic properties. So, you know, you're not just getting the actual nut, you're not just getting the healthy fat, which by the way is omega-3, but you're also getting prebiotics that feed and nourish the healthy microbes that live inside of you. Okay, next question. How do you season your veggies or grains or what sources do you use? I mean, I honestly don't even know where to begin because what I love is the diversity of flavors that exist within the plant-based world. All herbs and spices are plants. Boom. All herbs and spices are plants. And you just start to like play with the different flavor profiles. And if you're not sure where to start, literally just pick out an ethnic restaurant from some country that you've never been to before and go and try it out, right? Because there's cool flavors that you'll find in Ethiopia, in Thailand, Vietnam, um, you know, Japan, you go down the line, uh, Mexico, each one of these countries, Greece has a food tradition that was based in plants. We're the only countries that have built food traditions based on meat. That was never the case. The the food traditions were always built on the plants. And so you look at these other countries, you see what they eat and you find what you like. And then you sort of, I, I really think that when people are making a transition, don't feel like you need to eat food that you don't like. So true. And, and, and like this, the preparation is, is often forgotten. I find people contact me and they're like, I just can't, I just can't stomach beans. I don't like the taste. Right. I don't like the taste. And, and then I start to ask them and I say, okay, well, what do you, how did you used to cook your meat? And they would marinate it and they would, you know, spend some time preparing it. And often that is lost when someone's transitioning and it's, it's literally learning how to prepare new foods, but with your favorite flavors. Right. Yeah, 100%. And I, I'm a big believer that find what you like 
and then expand from there. I mean, that's actually one of the core concepts in my book. I have a 28 day plan that's in there. And that's one of the core concepts of this four week plan is that I want to help you find what you like so that when the 28 day plan is, is done, you, you can go back to that. You can go back to that and enjoy that and go from there. But one of the things that I personally love is fresh herbs and spices like liberally, you know, cilantro, basil, pick your meal and just go for it. For the Aussies out there, cilantro is coriander. That's what we call it down. Is that right? Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Why don't you put that in brackets in your book? (laughs) Okay. This one's interesting. Is coconut sugar healing? Simple answer. No. I think that, you know, the key here is a conversation about carbohydrates. So we are fearful of sugar that's derived from, you know, for example, high fructose corn syrup derived from corn or, you know, um, whatever different type of sugar that we traditionally have used. Okay. So we've become fearful of that, but we still want our sweetener. So we're going to transition over to this other thing that maybe is considered paleo approved. It's okay to have you know, coconut sugar or some other derivation of sugar, it's still processed. It's still processed. And you're still creating a simple sugar that's going to have the exact same physiologic effect within your body. So let's not pretend that this is somehow way better and that it's it's actually adding health to your body. No, it's not. So let's just take that one step further. I've come up with my own question here. Okay. So if someone was looking to sweeten a dish up, perhaps they're making a dessert for their family or on their oats, like are you would you be recommending things like dates or, or how would you recommend that they they do sweeten up their food? I think the dates I think the dates are good. I think that a dark maple syrup in moderation is very reasonable in terms of the approach. If you feel compelled to use a product, to me, the ones, again, in moderation, like don't go overboard here, but the ones that I would look at would be stevia and monk fruit. Those are the two that I would look at in terms of a product. So, but yeah, I think that, I think the dates, or I think that maple syrup are very reasonable ways to go about it. And, you know, again, in moderation, we don't want to make this a dominant part of our diet. What's your take on kombucha? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so <laughs> let me say this. I love kombucha. What are you drinking there, actually? It's not kombucha. It's no. some sort of tea. But okay. I, I love kombucha. I, I do drink it routinely. I sense a caveat coming here. But <laughs> the issue is that the hype has gone, gotten away from us. All right. The hype is ahead of the science right now with kombucha. People are drinking this, thinking that this is a silver bullet, that you, that you can fix all your problems by drinking kombucha. Simply not the case. Is it a superior alternative to some other beverages? hundred percent. Are you better off drinking kombucha than you are drinking, you know, some sort of Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, some sort of soda? hundred percent. I think that you're better off drinking kombucha. Should we be pounding kombucha, going overboard, drinking 16 ounces or more per day? No, it's way too much. I worry about the acidity of the kombucha. Um, it's very acidic. For me personally, when I drink kombucha, It's literally just a few ounces, three, maybe four ounces. And then what I do is I actually add a lot of water and I dilute it down. And one of the things I worry about is the effect of the acidity on our teeth because it can erode away our enamel. So routine consumption of the acidic kombucha can create issues for us over the course of time. 
let's not pretend that this is the healthiest beverage that exists. The healthiest beverage that exists is free, and that's water. I've got a few dentist friends, and they often talk to me about, you mentioned the acidity then, but they talk about sort of lemon and lime in your water, right. and they recommend for the same reasons for enamel to, after you've had a drink like that, to to really rinse your mouth out with water. Right, and there's people out there who do the apple cider vinegar thing. Like I don't, I don't personally do that. But if you're doing the apple cider vinegar thing, the same would be true for that. Yeah. Also, when I think about kombucha, right, and I'm not 100% sure if, if this is what happens, but when I think about what's happening at a bacteria level in the drink, right, that the bacteria in the drink is feeding off of the sugar. Mm-hmm. Now, would it get to a point when they have there is there is no longer sugar left and the bacteria would die and is there a potential difference, I guess, in the effectiveness of kombucha that is fresh versus something that's been in a bottle, like a long shelf life kombucha? Gosh, that is a great question. So I think that if you if you look at the products that are available commercially, basically what they're doing is they bottle it, seal it, and then they put it in the refrigerator. And the refrigerator slows down. Basically, the bacteria almost go into hibernation. And so it slows them down so much. And that's the reason why you won't see the conversion of that kombucha into vinegar. The point at which it crosses the line, like if you make your own kombucha, which I make my own yeah. kombucha all the time, the point at which it crosses the line, the, what you're referring to, where it's consuming all the, all the sugar is when you make vinegar and it becomes so acidic that it's literally not palatable. You're just like, I, I can't drink this. And it, I think it's, it's pretty obvious when you taste it. And I mean- like I, I know a fair bit around distribution of products into major stores and stuff. So even if that was refrigerated at the site, a lot of those RTD drinks end up in distribution facilities or warehouses or out the back, and they're not always left in cold, cold that's, storage. That's a great point <laughs> when you think about any sort of food or preparation that involves live organisms, including probiotics. The probiotic capsules, right? I mean, that's a great point, right? If, if it's going to a, a warehouse and it's sitting there and it's 110 degrees inside the warehouse, you're killing those bacteria. Thoughts on the effects of sulfur foods and gut health? So when we talk about sulfur foods, I think what we're really referring to are the allium family, which are the garlic, onions, leeks, things of that variety. So what's interesting is let's, let's just take garlic and take a look. And what you find is that garlic has some unique properties. When you slice garlic, you release something that becomes, that, that's called allicin. And allicin, which is a phytochemical, has antimicrobial, antibacterial, antifungal, even antiviral properties so you hear that and you think, oh gosh, that's interesting. Like, could that be good for the gut or would it not be good because it's antibacterial? And what they found when they study this is that when you consume this garlic with this active phytochemical, the allicin, what actually ends up happening is that you are knocking down the bad bacteria, but that the, the garlic actually contains prebiotics. And believe it or not, the prebiotic in this case are fructans. So we've talked about fructans before, which are a FODMAP. Some people want to vilify FODMAPs and make them into something that's bad. I'm giving you an example of where these, these FODMAPs are helping you. They are prebiotic and they're feeding the healthy bacteria that live in your colon. And as a result, what you get from this entire process 
is that you are knocking down the bad guys, you're building up the good guys, and you're swinging the pendulum in your favor from a gut health perspective. Now, not everyone can tolerate this because it's it's a FODMAP, it's a fructan. And so what that means is if you have damage to your microbiome, if you have dysbiosis, then it's you're going to have to ease your body into the garlic. And people at home who have this type of issue, they know what I'm talking about, where they take, they consume a little bit of garlic and they can feel, they can feel it in their gut. They have to find that threshold. And so you have to find that threshold and not cross that line. But generally speaking, the, this family of vegetables, the allium vegetables are definitely good for gut health. And I think I'll add something onto that. So I know in my reading recently, I came across a study that was looking at iron absorption and also zinc absorption, actually. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at what foods or, or nutrients can increase non-heme iron absorption specifically. And I think most people would know that vitamin C has been shown to increase non-heme iron absorption. And what they found that in addition to vitamin C, vitamin A also did, but they found that the addition of onion or garlic to meals that were rich in non-heme iron Increased absorption by up to 73.3%. Oh, my gosh. That's very ex- exact. Yeah. I got that right here. I got that right here, Dr. B. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic because personally, I I love onions and garlic in my food. I love the flavor that they bring. And I know it's not for everyone. Again, some people are have different thresholds of how much they can tolerate. But I love what they do. And one of the tricks from my perspective that I really dig I call it, and I wrote about this in my book, I call it chop then stop because onions and garlic, believe it or not, are in my core group of key fruits and vegetables. Yeah, they are. People, yeah, they're in yeah. there. <laughs> so are legumes, so are whole grains. But chop then stop, basically what you do is you chop your garlic and then you give it 10 minutes before you use it, cook it, whatever you're going to do. What you're doing by chopping and then stopping is you're allowing this enzyme to be activated to produce the allicin. So it's pretty cool. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Do you know, it's kitchen chemistry. Do you know Dr. Rhonda Patrick? Have you heard of her? Of course. She talks about that with broccoli and sulforaphane. Yeah. Similar sort of thing. Different okay. reaction probably. You're, okay. What's interesting is, I don't know if, if you knew this, but sulforaphane is also... I make a big deal about sulforaphane in the book. Let's go and there. Let's go there. Let's go there. And and so what's cool is we're talking about cruciferous vegetables, okay? And broccoli sprouts are an example of what I'm about to describe to you. But basically, cruciferous vegetables contain something that's supposed to protect them from invaders, okay? Protect them from bugs, protect them from other animals. And what it is, is they contain separate containers of something called a glucosinolate and an enzyme called myrosinase. And so it's fascinating to think about that that these plants evolved to have this because they're separated. They don't connect to each other. The only way that you can connect them to each other is to break the plant, which is what you're doing when you eat the food. And when you do this, it sets off a chain reaction where basically the glucosinolate mixes with the myrosinase and you develop, you create isothiocyanates. Isothiocyanates, one example is sulforaphane. These are cancer crushers. There's many different types. Sulforaphane is just one example. But the key here is that the myrosinase, the myrosinase is always the enzyme. So you can change out the glucosinolate. There's different glucosinolates out there. 
But the myrosinase is always the enzyme. And here's what's kind of cool. Myrosinase is temperature sensitive. The glucosinolate really is not. So if you heat up your food, if you cook your food, if you, for example, kale, right? If I buy frozen kale, well, that frozen kale has been blanched prior to them freezing it. And so the myrosinase has been eliminated from the product. So now I'm not going to get as much benefit from the isothiocyanate because I lack the enzyme. You following me here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's what you do. If you're using this frozen product or a cooked product, you cook, you steam your broccoli. Okay, you've deactivated the myrosinase. You have two options. You can either add in raw, fresh cruciferous of any variety. Go down the line, pick any of the cruciferous vegetables, sprinkle them in with your other food, and you're going to get the myrosinase from the fresh vegetable. But the other thing that you can do that's actually incredibly simple is mustard seed. So mustard seed powder has the myrosinase intact. For whatever reason, it survives the process. And so you can take mustard seed powder and give it a little sprinkle on your <laughs> cooked broccoli or whatever it is. It's kitchen chemistry. And you are producing your isothiocyanates and you are blasting cancer. I sent my girlfriend nuts doing this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was a there was a while. I mean, I still do it now, but there was a while there where every single night it was it was broccoli with mustard seed. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think that it's so cool these little tricks that exist. And that's one of the one of the reasons why I focused on the sulforaphane in, in the book, because this is something that's so simple for us to incorporate into our daily diet. Through broccoli sprouts, I really think the do you do do you sprout those or you can buy them them locally? We buy them locally because we have them readily available, but they're not hard to do. And actually, believe it or not, in the book, I I actually write out the steps of how you do the sprouting. It's not hard to do; it's incredibly easy. I'm wondering about the gut brain connection and what specifically one can do to heal both. So I think it's a complex, sort of complex question, but perhaps a simple answer. So this is, there's a two-way street of communication that occurs between the gut and the brain, and it goes both ways. There are 30, over 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Now, I will say that the serotonin produced in the gut, we don't believe it crosses the blood-brain barrier, but there's serotonin precursors that cross, cross the blood-brain barrier. There's other neurotransmitters that are able to cross, and there's communication between the two using a major nerve in the body called the vagus nerve. So they're able to communicate with each other. And the key here is taking care of the gut. And let me give a shout out to my favorite thing, one of the big themes, which is short-chain fatty acids. Butyrate produced in your gut is capable of traveling all the way through your bloodstream and arriving at the brain. And what's kind of cool is the, the brain has a protective wall in the same way that the gut does, right? So we know the model of dysbiosis. I've talked about this in prior podcasts, but I'm going to lay it out right now. The model of dysbiosis is three parts, damage or alteration of the gut microbiota, the bacteria, number one. Number two is increase intestinal permeability. You you basically break down the tight junctions between the cells, you increase intestinal permeability. Some people call that leaky gut. And number three is release of bacterial endotoxin. Now we look at what back, at what butyrate does in the gut, and it fixes all three of those things. Fixes the microbiota, corrects that, helps the good guys to grow, corrects increased intestinal permeability, corrects increased bacterial endotoxin. Powerful stuff. 
But what's amazing to me is that butyrate can pass through the bloodstream and get all the way up to the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier is conceptually very similar to the, the blood-gut barrier. And the, the butyrate is actually capable of helping to repair the blood-brain barrier. So people who have damage to the gut or leaky gut, if we want to call it that, will often say they have brain fog. And we struggle to exactly say what brain fog is. But I believe that brain fog is indicative of damage to the blood-brain barrier. And when you get adequate amounts of fiber in your diet through plant-based diversity, you create butyrate. And the butyrate is capable of traveling all the way up there to your brain to produce, to basically repair the blood-brain barrier. And in addition to that, it has other things that it does in the brain, such as it improves focus, concentration. I'll just tell you, like in writing this book that I just did, I mean, there's no way, there's no way I could have done this when I was eating the standard American diet a couple of years ago. The amount of focus, the amount of neuroplasticity, or I could the ability to adapt to what I was thinking about. And there's no way I could have done it before. So it's, it's interesting. And I think it's all completely legit. So it comes back again to fiber and diversity. Yeah. Next question. And we just had, we just had lunch at organic grill and Oh. I think I think the the waitress there either tried to offer you or somehow there was a bulletproof coffee or something <laughs> that it came up right, and that's the next question: Is there any benefit of having a bulletproof coffee, and why is there so much hype around this? There's hype around anything that makes us acutely feel good, right? So particularly if we haven't cleared up yet whether or not it's a bad thing, right? So like there was a period of time where cocaine was extremely popular in healthcare and whatnot. And I think that we all can look back on that and say, well, we really shouldn't be using that in medicine, surely, right? But it makes people feel good. And if you combine caffeine with fats that are readily absorbed, I can understand where it gives people a certain feeling of euphoria that they interpret as being good for their body. But the problem is that what you're doing is you're taking a beverage that I honestly think black coffee is very healthy. I think that it's what we add to it that creates issues. And what you're doing is you're adding in essentially saturated fat. And that saturated fat is dysbiosis inducing. We know that saturated fat affects all of those layers of dysbiosis that I just talked about, damages the microbiome, increases intestinal permeability, increases the release of bacterial endotoxin. We know that about saturated fat. And we also know that the high fat butter is TMAO producing. So to me, um, you may feel good on a temporary basis when you do this, but it's not going to be good for you in the long run. I'd love you to cover IBS tips for managing IBS. Well, first of all, let's say that there was a great podcast that you did with Dr. Serena Pasricha. And it was on this topic exactly. And it was on this exact topic. And so I, I in you know, 30 seconds can't really cover with the level of detail that Serena can. And she is a phenomenal gastroenterologist who I have great respect for. So, but from, from my perspective, when we are talking about IBS, what we're talking about is an underlying dysbiosis or damage to the microbiome. And what we want is we want to repair that dysbiosis. 
in an imperfect world, ideally, we want to be moving towards a plant-based diet with maximum diversity. But to get there, it may take us time, and we may need the benefit of the of additional prebiotic fiber and potentially also a probiotic. Those are two supplements that I have had great success with in my clinic in people with irritable bowel syndrome um, and seen improvements. Definitely, if you want more information on that, check out the podcast with Serena. We we go into some of the potential underlying mechanisms and causes and classifications of IBS and and then really flesh out a you know, the typical sort of treatment plan and what she sees clinically. I think that's a topic that, you know, if you have your old bowel syndrome, you want the nitty gritty. You want the full details. Okay. So next one is about IBD. So ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And the question is around eating a plant-based diet. However, this person is finding that when they're eating most vegetables, it's causing pain and it is asking what they should do from there. So the first thing I'll say is, uh, again, a, a shout out to another Plant Proof podcast episode, which you did with Dr. Alan Desmond, who Dr. Desmond tends to focus quite a bit on inflammatory bowel disease when he does his podcasts and also in his clinic. And so I think that that's a great episode to really get into the details of this kind of topic. But that being said, let's first separate active inflammation with inflammatory bowel disease from someone who has inflammatory bowel disease, but it's in remission, so it's not active. Okay. And the person who has active inflammation, we know that when the gut is inflamed, it's 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 going to be impaired. We know that it's going to be difficult to digest and process your food in that setting. So we want to try to make it simple and as simple and easy for your gut as possible. And that's where to me it comes back to okay what can we do here? Now is not the time for raw food. Now is the time for things that break down the food, make it much less complicated, much more simple. So like soups, to me, this is where you see the benefit. And I will say that generally speaking, I am not huge on juicing, but in this setting, juicing of vegetables allows us to get the phytochemicals without taxing ourselves with the fiber. So it's a little bit more gentle. We have to go low on the fiber when you're in this kind of setting where you have active inflammation. Now, fiber is going to heal, all right? Fiber is going to help you to heal your body. But if I were sitting here and telling you that the way to heal inflammatory bowel disease is purely through diet, well, then I'm not being honest because I don't think that's the right choice. So you have to get on top of the inflammation. I I truly believe that the right approach is combining optimization of your diet, optimization of your lifestyle, and boom, let's put the fire out. Let's use the medication options that we have to put the fire out. And what medication you're using, that's a conversation that you need to have one-on-one with the doctor. So you can't, I can't make a universal recommendation because it's really individualized what you choose to do. But squash the fire and low fiber and then work our way up over the course of time. That's the way to go. I've been having a leaky gut lately. What can I do to overcome this? So I think a good a good thing to perhaps go over here is to define what leaky gut actually means because it kind of seems like something that is is thrown around and similar to IBS. Is it different? What what 
what actually is leaky gut? So in the Western medical world that I work in, we don't recognize leaky gut syndrome as a, as a formal diagnosis. Within gastroenterology, there is no formal diagnosis of leaky gut syndrome. But that being said, we see people with patterns of symptoms and we may put them into a different category. The key here is this. When we talk about leaky gut, there is increased intestinal permeability that exists. And that increased intestinal permeability is part of the package that we see with dysbiosis. So dysbiosis to me is not just leaky gut. Dysbiosis is also release of bacterial endotoxin and also damage to the bacteria. But me personally, when someone starts talking about leaky gut, I'll have a conversation. We can have a conversation about that, but I'm using the word dysbiosis and maybe it's just semantics, but it allows us to operate on the same playing field so that we're talking about the same thing as far as I'm concerned. If you're talking about leaky gut syndrome necessarily, well, then for me, what I would do is I would categorize that more specifically. And many of those patients would fall into your overall syndrome. Here's one for me, actually. So all of the, the microbiome talk that we've been talking about is about the large intestine. What about the bacteria in our small intestine? Do we, do we know much about it and the importance of it? So there is far, this is such an interesting topic because literally there's a study that was a total game changer that came out three days ago, published in the journal Nature, which again is the number one scientific journal in the entire world. So let's break this down. And that wasn't set up. This guy's just right on top of the science. (laughs) Take me through it. So taking a step back before we come to that actual scientific article, the population of bacteria within the actual small intestine is not meant to be very high. It's a small fraction compared to what it is within the colon. The vast majority of bacteria that exist within the intestinal system are there within the colon. But there is a gradient that exists as you move through the intestinal tract. So you'll see far less in the stomach. And as you move through the small intestine, there's three parts to the small intestine. First, the duodenum, which is rather short, then the jejunum, and finally the ileum. The small intestine is very long. We call it small because of the caliber, but it could be 15 or 20 feet long. And as you move through, there's a gradient of bacteria, but there's not supposed to be a significant population. So there's this diagnosis that now exists called small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And many people are- Oh, SIBO. SIBO. Sadly, many people are being diagnosed with this based upon either what they read on the internet or they're being told by someone that they see some sort of care provider will say, you have SIBO, but they're not being tested. Well, that's not appropriate. All right. If they're going to diagnose you with SIBO and change the treatment the way that they treat you, then they should do the appropriate testing to determine whether or not you have it. But there's a challenge that exists now. There's a real challenge in trying to identify who are the people. And this is an example where it's frustrating because the hype has run away from the science. The number of people who believe they have SIBO and the way that we're treating it is outpaced by what we're actually able to tell you from a scientific perspective right now. Because the gold standard test has been culture of fluid that you get from the small intestine. If you can grow the bacteria from that culture, you can diagnose them with SIBO. But here's the key. The study that just came out three days ago has called that entire process into question. What they showed is that if you culture the fluid, you're going to get false positives from people that have absolutely no symptoms at all. And they actually correlated that with fiber consumption. When you consume fiber, 
believe it or not, it's good for the microbes, but there will actually be more microbes in the small intestine and it will, you will actually grow them when you go to culture them using this technique. That person should not be treated as if they have SIBO. That would be a mistake. But on the flip side, what they found is that if you actually were to look in more detail at what's happening to these microbial communities, you using advanced laboratory techniques that aren't available clinically, what you see is that the people who are symptomatic have damage to the communities of microorganisms that live in their small intestine, meaning they have dysbiosis of the small intestine. And therefore, they're manifesting symptoms because they're struggling to process their food. So one final one, I think we're going to break this Q&A up over a couple episodes. Okay. <laughs> How many times a day should a whole foods plant-based vegan go number two? Oh, gosh. That's just... <sighs> I mean, I kind of love it and I kind of hate the question because I don't want people to um, become anxious about how often they go. Because if you go once a day and you feel like it's a good relief, it's effortless, and you feel like you've completely emptied and you're having no GI symptoms, then you've done your work. So what? I, maybe maybe it's easier to define what would be clearly abnormal. To me... Um, to me, clearly abnormal or like what defines constipation to me, what defines constipation is the development of symptoms in relation to inadequate defecation. And so that you could go every day and you can be constipated if you're not completely emptying your bottom. And then you develop symptoms, abdominal pain, bloating, gas, um, nausea. And that can present as diarrhea as well, which you've covered before. And it could also, you could have overflow diarrhea where there's basically impacted stool. And the only thing that can get through is the liquid. And then you present with diarrhea. So to me, if we're really looking at this, most people, if they're eating an adequate amount of fiber, would probably have two or three bowel movements per day. Most people. And three or four on the, on the Bristol stool chart. Most would be around a, a four or a three on the Bristol stool chart. That's right. All right, Dr. B, you're a wealth of knowledge and I look forward to doing this again. We've got another 20 odd questions. Oh man. Follow that. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, mate. Thanks, man. Well, there you go, friends. Isn't Dr. B just a wealth of knowledge? He's certainly always welcome back on the Plant Proof Podcast. I think it's so important to source information from truly qualified experts, particularly when it pertains to complex issues like microbiome and gut health. I see too many ebooks and folks online claiming they are gut health experts, but they just haven't done the training or or research. Usually they have an N equals one personal case study, and that's fine and, and inspiring in itself, but really isn't the type of person I want you to be seeking information from for your own health decisions. If you enjoyed today's episode, Will and I would love to hear from you. Tag us on Instagram at plant underscore proof and at the gut health MD. Let us know what you thought. And if you haven't yet and get a spare minute, please leave a review on iTunes. For those who already have, thanks so much. It really does help the show reach more people, which is a real priority of mine. That's all for today. I can't wait to catch you in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay positive. And if you're burning the wick at both ends like me, try to find some time to relax and quieten the mind.